Well, what is God's will for my life? You may have asked that question before. It might be that this morning you're a child and you're not in kids' church with us this morning, so you're, you're here and you're colouring in some bookmarks, part of our in- industry to make bookmarks for church can. It wasn't on purpose that way, it was just worked out well. Maybe you're a kid and maybe that's crossed your mind. When I was a kid, I don't know why I used to spend a lot of hours on tractors going round and round in those days. Tractors these days go up and back. But in those days, it went round and round. John Williamson sings a song about it. So does Sarah Stora. But in those days, I spent a lot of time by myself thinking. And I started to think, what, what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of life? What is life about? Maybe that was you. Maybe not. Maybe it was when you're a teenager. Often, perhaps as a teenager, we start having those questions, don't we? We start asking ourselves, and you're a teen here this morning. You're asking, what am I doing here? What is life about? Why do those things hurt me at school? Why do I go to school? What what am I doing here? What's life for? We perhaps start to ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Perhaps we've been sitting in church for a little while and we've entered young adulthood. It's particularly in young adulthood we start asking the big questions of life. That's when we see all of life before us and it feels like we'll live in our 20s forever. We're forever young. We start asking questions of that category. What is, if if God is there and and I believe in him, but perhaps what is God's will for my work? What is his will for my relationships? For my future? And then we find ourselves rapidly leaving young adulthood, sooner than we expected, actually. It's always the case. And we start entering and meeting that thing called middle age. So we enter our 30s, and we're living in that kind of denial period. It's not middle age when it actually is. Many people across history, that was the end of their age. But we enter in the West, that middle age, where social commentators tell us in the West, that is the time we really ask this big question in life, the big questions of life. And often, we ask it with a silent scream. Because we get to middle age, and the things that we thought we'd we do and have done, we haven't done, and the expectations we have of life were not met, and we're a little disappointed if we're honest. And then if we have faith in God, we ask, what is God's will for my life now? Or perhaps we find ourselves in our senior years. In our senior years, we have been blessed with a lifetime of experiences and therefore wisdom, because wisdom is a collection, not just of intellect, it's a collection of experiences and knowledge and being through things. And we've got all that with us, which is such a blessing, isn't it? One day I'd love to preach through Proverbs, which would be a bit of a different way to preach through the Bible, if you know the book of Proverbs, but to, to see what wisdom is about. But Well, then we find in our senior years, we've got the wisdom and yet still that nagging thought about what is God's will for my life? What is what's next? Perhaps God's will for my children or grandchildren. What is God doing with my life and with the changes and uncertainty that I still face? Just when we thought we'd have it sorted out, perhaps it's just not. What is God's will for my life? Friends, that can be a crippling question. 
if we didn't have a clear word from God on the matter. And by God's grace, and we give thanks to him, we do. It's right here in Romans 12, and it's in two verses. Let's read it. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is God's will for your life? Well, in short, in summary, and it's the sermon title, and we could pack it up and pray and leave it at that, but I do want to explain why that is the case from the Scriptures. But in short, it is to worship Him. Whatever else happens, in a sense, whatever else happens is not as important as that we worship Him in everything else that happens. To have your life so rearranged by the worship of God, that is the will of God for the church. As we see in Romans 12, even that is a gift. It's given to us by the grace of God, by the mercies of God. Look at verse 1 again. Check this out. It's a, it's a profound sentence. And in the book of Romans, and if you know the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, this is a hinge sentence. It's a turning point in this book. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. See, what is the sentence doing? If you've got your Bible there, I hope you do in front of you. And this is where paper Bibles are such a revolution for us. Because you can actually flick through them and you see a big picture before you. It's a bit harder on the screen, isn't it, to see that. You're kind of scrolling back and forth and your thumb gets so tired. But uh, with paper Bibles, your thumbs don't get tired. It's wonderful. And what you do is you actually look, as you look in Romans and you see you're up to chapter 12, you actually see a big picture writ large of Paul's treatise, his, his work on explaining how wonderful the gospel of God is. And as he gets to chapter 12, he gets to this verse, there is this key word, therefore. And as you've heard before from this pulpit, always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? What's it doing there? Paul is saying, after everything that's gone before in chapters 1 to 11 of his letter to the church at Rome, God's word to us here, Paul is saying, after everything has gone before, therefore, this is how now we respond. Now, yes, of course, in Romans, up until now, there's been lots of application. You have to go anywhere in Romans and you can see application. But Paul is saying, after all of that, therefore, by the mercy, by the mercies of God, this is how now we are to live. You'll actually notice this when you read the Bible. Every letter in the New Testament, particularly you can see this easily in the ones that Paul writes, has this gospel shape. So think of Ephesians. Ephesians is a beautifully written letter. It's, it's almost like an abridged version of Romans, sort of. So is Galatians, sort of. So, but even in Ephesians, Galatians, like for Ephesians, for example, is six chapters long. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all the gospel, what God has done. 
And the second three chapters, the second part, the three chapters, you know, four, five, six of Ephesians, are all our response to that gospel. You see how it's a gospel framework? It's what God has done first, then we respond. Because if it was the other way around, it would not be gospel at all. That wouldn't be good news. You've got to do some things to then get grace. Well, that doesn't make sense. You see how Paul writes Ephesians, how he writes Romans. First, this is what God has done in his glorious grace for us. Now, here's our response to the gospel. The whole letter is a framework for the gospel. And Paul says in verse 1, by the mercies of God, therefore. What's interesting is the word mercy, just pick on that word alone. Mercy alone in chapters 9 to 11 appears nine times. And Paul progresses through this letter looking deep into God's mercy for us. Even as Christians, as believers, we can so easily get bored or want to find something else. So we kind of, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that. But when it comes to when it really matters, do you know it? Do you believe it? Do you rely upon the mercies of God for you in Christ Jesus? Because this is our very life, our very hope in death. It's the mercies of God. And if you believe it, it will mean you live it. It'll actually change how you live. It'll change everything about your lifestyle, your, your framework, what life is about from inside out, from the depths of our hearts, through our mouths and our words, our attitudes and our actions. If you believe the gospel, it will change you and your gospel culture. It will change your church. And the gospel is such good news because it is all by the mercies of God. Now, I'd love to preach the Romans this morning. We don't have the time. Um, years ago, in fact, it was 2017 we last preached through the whole book of Romans. We did that because in 2017, that was the anniversary of the start of the Reformation, 500 years since Martin Luther went to the door of Wittenberg, which was a notice board in those days at the university, and said, night, and wrote 95 theses and said, no more. I want to debate some things about what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, October 31st, it's not Halloween, right? I know that happens on October 31st. Now kids are like, it's Halloween, because everyone and all their friends are saying it's Halloween. Well, whatever. What we do, for, and this is a tangent, what we do for Halloween, by the way, is we, we find Bibles that, you know, the Gideons are handing out and they, people put in bins. We find those and all those sorts of things. And we, that's what we give to people as they do trick-or-treating. You know, what, some, yeah, great, here's some Bibles. Right. Anyway, talk about that later. But October 31st is Reformation Day. The closest Sunday every year we celebrate as a church is Reformation Sunday. This year, I think it's October 28th, you can check me on that from memory, but this year we're celebrating with our annual congregational meeting that we are a Reformed church. And why are we a Reformed church in theology? Because the Bible gives us Reformed theology. Because the Bible, and when you read Romans, is the centre of our Reformation. In fact, it's how the Reformation started. It's how awakenings and revivals often started. How did Martin Luther come to nail 95 things he wanted to debate on the university door of Wittenberg? How did he come to do that? Because he read Romans. Because he struggled to understand, how can I believe in a God who's just going to punish me at a moment's notice if I put one foot out of line? And he read Romans and realized, grace, 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 and it lit him up. 
They say, scholars say, and you can check this out perhaps by Google, they say, if you look at paintings of Martin Luther before he discovers the gospel of grace, he's gaunt and unhealthy looking, constantly worried, like the poor farmer we heard in the kids' talk. But then when he discovers the gospel, we see paintings post-Reformation Martin Luther, and he's fat and jolly, and he says and writes things like, sin boldly. Romans changes lives because the gospel in this book changes lives. We don't have time to go through it all, but let me give you a nutshell reading of Romans up until chapter 12, why verse 1 is so important. See, in Romans 1, Paul writes, the problem in Romans 1, writ large, is worship has gone wrong in the world. That's the problem. The problem is not which to live in naughty at times. The problem is not that some people sin, it's those people over there. They've got to clean up their life. I've never seen so many people with so many problems over there. No, no, no. The people with the problems are here. It's me. I've got the problem. Romans 1 says, All of us, we humans are mere creatures. And whilst we were made to walk with God, just like in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, we're made to be with God, to worship God. And what is worship, by the way? Is to acknowledge the worthiness of something, as we get the English word from. Worship is worthiness. We were designed to walk with God and behold His worthiness and worship Him, to live for Him. As Westminster Shorter Catechism says, we were designed for our purposes to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our design. We were made to love Him with our heart, our soul, our strength and mind. And then we fell. So the great problem is, just as we see in the garden, we fell out of relationship with God, we have fallen. So yes, we're broken. That's true. One of our political leaders said recently, you, you mustn't say, and this is kind of aimed at the church a little bit, you mustn't say we're broken. But actually we are, let's be honest. But it's even more than broken. We're not just broken as if just stuff happened to me and I'm an innocent victim. I just got broken, hey? It's not my fault. I'm not just broken, we're fallen. We're sinful. I am sinful. All humans are guilty of this because we make a terrible exchange in life, Romans 1 says. Instead of worshipping the Creator, which is what we're designed to do, we end up worshipping the creature. We look around for things made of stone and wood that we make and worship them. Stone, wood or plastic. But more than that, we don't just, make, we don't just worship the stuff around us. We worship what we see in the mirror. We worship the creature. We live for ourselves rather than God. And Romans 1 says, you know what we do next? We then try and justify ourselves. We try and say to ourselves in Romans 1 to 3, hey, I'm not that bad. So Paul says, well, look, you know, he says, I'm a Jew. Let me just speak to my Jewish brothers, sisters. If you Jews, he says in Romans 2 and 3, if you Jews think that you're not that bad, you're not as bad as the Gentiles, you're not as bad as the world, just a minute, I've got something for you too, because we are just as bad, Paul says. 
We cannot justify ourselves. And in Romans 3 comes this complete conclusion in verse 10. There is none righteous, no one, not one. No one who understands, no one seeks for God. No one's walking around going, you know what, I'm going to find God. He wasn't lost. No one seeks for God, no one. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no one righteous, there is no one who can stand before God and justify themselves. Just hang on a minute, God. Just hang on a minute. Just, God, just, shh. I am not that bad, God. There is no one that will stand before the holy, glorious, righteous judge and tell him to be silent. There is no one righteous, not one. And not one of us can fix our fallen state. Not one of us can save us from our sin. That's why we need God to change everything for us. So the book of Romans is about from chapter 3 to chapter 11, we hear the gospel for our hearts, for our very lives, that the glory of God in Christ, the great rescuer, the one to save the humans, comes into the world. He takes on flesh. He lives with the fallen. And just like Adam, our federal head, Romans 5, the father of all who has sinned, Jesus is the new head of the church, the father of all those who are justified by his blood. He has washed away our sin. Thank you, Jesus. Because Jesus comes to die the sinner's death of judgment. Jesus comes to do what you and I could never do. God, the judge, gets judged at the cross. So that he is now head of the church and we have new life in him. Because of the gospel, fallen sinners can now be forgiven saints. Justified, not by our own stammering words. Not justified. In fact, we can be silent and just point to Jesus. It's Jesus who justifies me. Because of his penal substitutionary atonement for my sin. The penalty, he was a substitute, atone for my sin. He did it. Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Friends, if you realize your sin, if you actually have an honest moment with yourself of self-reflection instead of pointing the finger at everybody else and all their problems if you had a moment of lucid coherent actual christian thought you would realize i need the gospel most of all i am the chief of sinners and you would say that's good news that's good news for me It'll light you up. For as Romans 8 says, when it comes to the great reality of all those in the grit of life, no matter whether you're a teenager struggling through or middle-aged with a silent screen, no matter what happens to you in your senior years, no matter what, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You face no fear on that last day. You can look forward to it and say, I look forward to seeing him who justified me, freed me from my sin.
Friends, Romans tells us, you can't lose when you know the love of God in Christ. You can't lose. So now what follows is our response to that good news. I appeal to you, reforming church, by the mercies of God. We can now be living sacrifices, verse 1. That's such a weird phrase. Have a look at it in your Bibles there. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Goodness, that's weird. Don't you think? Like, if you just think about it for a moment, perhaps we too easily glide over words in the Bible. We don't deeply reflect upon these words, but we need to behold how bizarre that phrase is. A living sacrifice. The language of sacrifice, of course, Paul is picking up is the, the Jewish Old Testament sacrificial system for atoning of sins. And how did that happen? Well, an animal was sacrificed. Now, when you sacrifice an animal, what usually happens? I don't know if you've seen this. Maybe you could YouTube it. Probably might not be on YouTube. It mightn't be pretty. You could read about it in the Bible. But, but I think you get the concept, don't you? An animal sacrifice means what happens for the animal? It's dead. It's dead. So how can you have a living sacrifice? See, the person making the animal sacrifice doesn't just bring any old animal. They bring the best of the animals. An animal has to be without blemish, without defect. It's the best of the best from the flock of the herd. And this animal, therefore, is very expensive and the the sacrifice is very costly, but it also has to be complete. So don't get the best of the best and go, oh, I'm going to make an animal sacrifice today and there's the altar. And go over the altar. Shh, little lamb. Shh, little, I know you. Shh, little lamb. Shh. Perhaps you get the lamb a name. Shh, little Bob. Shh, little lamb. And you go, just act dead. Tiny sauce bottle. Here the lamb's dead. Uh, it's just, just kicking. Um, and you take it home because I'm not going to sacrifice my best lamb. You can't do that. That wouldn't be a sacrifice at all. And it wouldn't be complete. You see, Jesus is that sacrifice now. We saw in Hebrews 10, our cross-reference reading, the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of animals, that will not suffice in the end. It has to be a perfect person. And the man who is God, Jesus is our sin offering, Jesus is our substitute, and Jesus does not faint on the cross. Jesus doesn't go to the cross and then get rescued. Jesus has a name and it's precious. And that person with a name dies on a cross. And he does so as our complete and perfect and costly substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. That is the great exchange now that Jesus has made for us. And all those temple sacrifices point towards that. Now, what does that mean for us? It means to be a living sacrifice 
cannot mean we now need to sacrifice like Jesus to get God's favour. To be living sacrifice doesn't mean we've got to offer continual sacrifices now to please God because that's been done in Jesus. You don't need to bring Bob the lamb and sacrifice. It's been done completely in Jesus. So whilst this language is a little strange to us, the living sacrifice, it's a response to the complete sacrifice. It means we now get to keep living as we live for Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us in real time, live? What does it mean for us in our week this week? I've heard people explain it like this, that um, a living sacrifice is kind of like a, you know, a salary sacrifice system. So what you're doing is um, you sacrifice a portion of like your income is paid and you sacrifice a portion of that to receive benefits like a car for work or something. But it's, it's actually not like that. See, living sacrifice, the language here in Romans 12 verse 1 is not the language of just part of your life is just a bit of a sacrifice. The rest is kind of like do whatever you want. The language here is not a portion. It's complete. It's not about apportioning some of life as if just the Sunday morning stuff. Just Sunday morning, we can pretend that our life is holy and acceptable to God. But Sunday afternoon, we can be godless in our attitudes, in our words and actions, totally fine. Because we did our Sunday morning stuff. We did the portion, you see. Can't be right. Like as if, as if God the Father sends the Son to die for our sin so that we can be godly for two hours on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week doesn't matter if we do some gossip and, you know, well, that's fine. You know, the gospel has come to free us from that slavery to mean our lives are actually changed. Since therefore Jesus, Romans 1 to 11, has already died for our sin, we are now to die to self completely and live for him. And Paul writes, this is our, well, our ESV translates in front of us, this is our, you see there, spiritual worship now at this point we look at the word spiritual we, we get what that means in in the english bibles in front of us if that's what your english bible has it's not a physical we're not actually dying physically it's spiritually we're living for we're dying to self living for jesus but the word spiritual there is fascinating in the original the original word is logikos that's where we get the word logic from so you can read it now, which is your logical worship. To be a living sacrifice is a logical, reasonable, rational thing to do. There was a first century Stoic philosopher, his name is Epictetus, if you're looking for a kid's name. Um, and he said this, he wrote this, if I were a nightingale, that's a bird, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan... I would do what is proper for a swan. But in fact, I am a logikos. I am a logical person. So I must worship God. Because what you worship will arrange your life. See, the world says that being a living sacrifice, worshiping God, 
you're a fanatic, you're a freak, you're a fundamentalist. But if you know the mercies of God, it only follows the only logical thing to do in life, if you believe in the grace of God in Jesus, the only logical thing for you to do is to worship him. That is the only rational, reasonable response to a God who has saved you from sin, death, and judgment. If you do anything else, you're just being irrational. Sorry if that's offensive. I want to say as the youth say, sorry, not sorry, or if they still say that these days, who can tell? I can't keep up. But sorry, not sorry. But here's the thing. If you know the mercies of God, you see what Jesus has done, and you won't worship him with your whole life, you are being irrational, illogical. It doesn't make sense. And doing that, verse 2, will mean you have a renewed mind. It's interesting here, the language in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, is plural. We've seen this before. It's harder to see in the English, but it's plural. So you could actually translate it with, well, if it was, if it was Australian, we'd say use. Use all. Use. Use. Have this renewed mind. So let's look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of use mind. It's the best translation I can give to get the gist. Why is it important to see, church? Because we easily think, living in such an individualistic culture, that the gospel is just for me. And we miss that it's for we. This is for the church. This is for church life, not just for the Lord's Day Sunday, but for Monday to Saturday as well. Because the problem we have with wrong worship is not just a Sunday problem. It's not like we just don't have the right songs I like. The problem of worship is we naturally drift to not living for God in everyday life. And it's we do that. But we now have an opportunity, and this is why the church gathers for our gathered worship, for our sent worship, to see the gospel rearrange and renew our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In your mind, here's a question for you. What is your mind's screensaver? Do you know how computers have screensavers? So if you don't touch your computer for a while, the screensaver just goes to whatever you've got for it. For me, I have... Um, people of church history who suffered. So that's my screensaver. So I see Polycarp, Latimer, Ridley, Burn at the Stake, uh, Cranmer, Burn at the Stake, Polycarp, by the way, eaten by lions, in case you didn't know, um, Apostle Paul, the cross, Calvin, kicked out of his church, didn't want to go back, went back again, didn't like being there, had a suffering time, all those people. That's my screensaver. What's your screensaver in life? What's mine? That is... Not in front of the computer, but like if you just have a moment, perhaps you are on the bus or you are on the tractor or whatever you're doing in life, 
Perhaps you're colouring in a bookmark for church camp. What does your mind's screensaver go to? What do you reflect on in life? I wonder if you could add to that folder of pictures a picture of the mercy of God. Reflect on the mercies of God in those spare moments and it will renew your mind. It'll actually change your mind about life and about one anothering. Because if you reflect on the mercy of God for you, you will actually look at other people with the mercy of God, won't you? You won't look at them in a haughty way or I'm above you or better than you or tear you down to build me up. If you reflect upon the mercies of God for you in Christ Jesus, if you actually believe the grace of God you've received in Christ Jesus and you worship him, you can't worship him and then wear down other people. No, you worship him and you look at other people with love and grace and mercy. Don't you? Can I encourage you in your screen-saving mind to reflect upon the mercies of God, Reforming Church? To reflect upon how much mercy you have received and look at the difference that Jesus makes to life. There's a great series of contrasts here in Romans. In Romans 1.18, Romans 1.18 says, We deserve the wrath of God. Now, if we've got the screensaver on, mercies of God, we deserve the wrath of God. What now? Now we have, as unworthy recipients, received the mercies of God. Instead of wrath, we get mercy. Well, that's got to change things, hasn't it? Romans 1.24, instead of dishonouring our bodies, now we can offer our bodies without dying, by the way. What a perk. As a living sacrifice. Instead of, Romans 1.25, instead of worshipping the creature, we can now worship the creator, who's actually better for us. It's actually good for us. We can have a renewed mind. Because verse 2, we don't have to conform to this world, but be transformed. Ten years ago, we started this local church, planted this church. We had to think of a name for it. We're Presbyterians. So we've got a lot of history of names for churches. We usually call them after people's names. That can be confusing. So there's St. John's and there's St. Andrew and there's St. Philip. And people say, who's John and why is it his church? So, well, so we had to think of a name. For various reasons, and you can go on our website, I think it's all there, you can find out why. We're called Reforming Church. We didn't consider this name, Conforming Church. Verse 2, we didn't think, you know what would be good? Let's call ourselves Conforming Church. Because conforming is not good. I know the world wants to live in this kind of ongoing rebellion ever since Adam and Eve got, had to leave the garden. And we think that rebellion is great. But you know what rebellion is? It's actually just conforming. You're just a big conformist. To rebel and live like the world, to rebel against God, you are just doing what everybody else naturally does. It's not profound it's not a revolution you're just doing what everyone does in the human race not one of us would do any different but by the grace of god so paul says now because of the gospel you don't need to conform to this world don't be a conformist be a revolutionary be a transformed person by the gospel And conformity 
of course, only changes the externals, doesn't it? You can see this, actually. I've noticed this. You know, I, I do a lot of kids' runs for school, pick up the kids, drop the kids off. So you're driving past schools, and why is it? I mean, this was the same for me, I'm sure, when I was 15 years old. A lot of 15-year-old boys have the same haircuts. Like it's the, the sides and the back and the mullet. Everyone's the same. Like if everyone's doing the same thing, it's not quite so revolutionary, is it? But also I've noticed this, a lot of preachers have the same haircuts. <laughs> we can fall in this. There are, don't get me started. There are whole sites you can go to of preachers and sneakers or something or other that someone pointed out to me. Who cares? But we all do it, don't we? We just conform to be like everybody else. We dress like people. And but conforming is always only the externals. Transforming is not the externals. Transforming happens in here, inside out. It happens in the heart, the very seat of our beliefs, the very seat of our worship. It happens inside out. The world is constantly proclaiming to you, you are being preached at all week conform. But we get to proclaim Christ who transforms you and changes everything inside out. It happens by his spirit, with his word, the gospel changing our minds. It happens as we keep reading and hearing and thinking about that gospel. It happens as we are not just receive as a good information, but receive as a good news that we hold on to. It happens as you find yourself daily dependent upon him. Now you might be listening up to this point and you're thinking, that's all very nice. That's nice for the Christians in the room. I'm not really interested in Christianity. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home and you thought, that was for my parents. But I'm on the cusp of thinking, I want to do life differently. I want to do my own thing. And as soon as I'm 18, I'm out of here. I don't want Jesus. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're thinking, goodness, Russ, you're boring. Well, it's not about me and I don't really care. It's about Jesus. But to this moment, can I just talk to you for a second? Let's talk. If you think this is not for you, if you don't want to live for Jesus, if you think not living for Jesus, not worshipping him is freedom, here is your very real problem. And by the way, I've tried this. Everybody lives for something. You are living for something. And whatever you live for, you are sacrificing for that something. And the clear reality that Romans 1 shows us is that humanity never for one second stopped worshipping. Humanity never for one second stopped worshipping They just changed what they worshipped. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this is so easy to see once you had your eyes open. But for me, it took a couple of years. And I grew up in a Christian home where I found church completely boring, not church's fault. Where I found the preaching something I wouldn't really listen to, not the preacher's fault. My spiritual hard heart. But once the Holy Spirit has turned the lights on and your eyes have been opened and you've seen this great reality, and I pray they are now, I pray that will happen for you. You'll see this. What are the options before you? 
Let me give you a few examples. Things I've lived for. If you live for your work, this could be me. I could live for my work and what I do here. This, this gives me meaning and purpose. If you live for that, or perhaps you don't have work, you're out of work and you live for that ideal work, that ideal job, whatever it is, if that's the most important thing to you, you will sacrifice everything for that. Question, what does work do for you? Does it provide everlasting meaning and purpose? For some, stopping work means losing purpose and meaning in life. Work becomes our life, and if we don't have it, therefore our life ends. But more than that, your work is always going to disappoint you. In this fallen world, your work is full of thorns and thistles. And did your business, your work, your career sacrifice anything for you? Did it die for your sin and rise for your hope? Now, of course, you might think, ah, that's not me. I'm not interested in work that much. That's not, that's not about me. I, I'm, not, I'm not a worshipper of work, but we all have some sort of God replacement. Perhaps for you, it's relationships. You might secretly live for something or someone who sometimes can actually be not a real person. It's an ideal picture of a relationship. You look at a person from a distance, ah, that, and you idealize that person until idealizing ends up becoming idolizing a person. And that becomes our worship. We live for it. And what happens then is it actually changes us because we live for their friendship. We must have their friendship. We must have them make us feel good about ourselves and our esteem. And we live to earn their love. And if we ever make them cross or cranky or disagree with us, we can never let that happen because I must have their friendship. You see what is happening here? You are sacrificing for them. You are living for them. But what if they reject you? What if you constantly fear people's reactions to you? What if you seek to please people so much and you find you just can't please them? What if you sacrifice so much on that altar? Do you see? You so live for them, you sacrifice for them, that it devastates you. And let me just speak to the parents in the room. I happen to be one, by God's grace. But if you're not a parent, sometimes we can idealise that too, don't we? We can idolise that. But look, we've become parents, we idolise the time when we weren't parents. Oh, we had all that free time. But here's where it really comes to home for parents, particularly if you've got parents, you've got, you've got children that are teenagers, becoming young adults. See, parents, sadly, I think, for me included, we can fall into the spiral of living for our kids' approval. We sacrifice them in the process. We turn them into little idols, little gods. We must make them happy and give them everything. But they're not able to handle that elevation of worship. And not only does it dishonor everyone, it dishonors God. And you've not taught them who really is worthy of their worship. Lastly, you may just say, none of that that. I just live for myself. I don't need to worry about relationships, children, or work. I just live for myself. Friend, that is a dangerous thing right there. You might say, I don't care. I don't care about others. I don't care about one another. I don't care. 
Well, you know what? I think that's a fame. That's a foe. That's a fake. It's a pretense. Because you've got to shout it louder to convince yourself you don't care. And you become more isolated, realizing that in the end, no one will care for you. Because you simply won't let them. Friends, it is only Jesus who is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus will free you from being a disappointed workaholic or a disappointed parent in their children's performance or a devastated people pleaser. Only Jesus will free you. And Jesus does change everything. He rearranges our life. Worship that rearranges our life. This is God's will. This is for our joy. Motivated by God's mercy, grounded in his grace, that changes how we live. So the gospel is we don't just get forgiveness from God and justification and substitutionary atonement. We actually get God himself. That's the gospel. We get God. We get to live for him. And now we can.